Well, it is a special day for our faith family as well. And so excited to be with you this morning. Thanks for coming out. Uh, get the opportunity now to open up God's Word with us and that God would condescend and just love us through this. It's exciting. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, we, we've been going through the book of Acts, but we're going to put that on pause today just in light of, uh, of what's, what we're celebrating today. And we'll be in Luke chapter 15. I want to I speak to this idea of, of uh, parenting a little bit. As we've dedicated children, uh, over 20, 22 of them, I think, and we're going to baptize some people. Uh, I just want to speak to this for a moment, but I want to say a disclaimer up front. Uh, I do not pretend to uh, stand before you as an expert in this area. Uh, I have four very different daughters, uh, and, and the, the, each one uh, I have to learn new things about every day. Uh, I don't have sons, so I don't know what that's like. Uh, and uh, f- in fact, if anyone would stand up and claim to be an expert, I probably wouldn't listen to them because every child is different and they have different backgrounds and experience. And so uh, I just come to you as, as a pastor. As someone who's trying to look through the lens of the Word of God and say, how does this apply to our lives? And, and as I do that, I realize in this room, every one of you is a theologian. And everyone who's ever lived is a theologian. Like, I'm not a theologian. Well, you might not be a good theologian, but you're a, you're a theologian. So you're either a good one or a bad one. And out of our theology, what we think about when we think about God and what we think is ultimate reality is how we're going to think on what we value and what we pursue and what, what goals we have, how we parent, how we do marriage, how we do money. All these things come out of theology. And so my hope and my prayer is that, this, Lord, help us be better theologians. <laughs> Help us to think rightly about these things. So let me ask this question. Have you ever considered what is the aim? What is the goal of Christian parenting? Have you ever wondered what, what, is, what is the one thing, what is the distinctiveness of, of being called as a Christian to be a parent? What is the goal for your children? And, and if you haven't nailed that down, down that goal, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian parent, what you will end up doing, and even if you do know, the temptation of our culture, the air that we breathe, is to pursue a whole set of goals that maybe are good goals but not the ultimate goal and become idols... Or or they're, in fact, goals that are antithetical to the gospel for you as a parent and for your children. So, for example, if your goal is to keep your kids just safe and protected from the world, that's not a biblical goal for your child. That that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but ultimately it's not the ultimate goal. If your goal is for your kids to, to be trophy kids, that's a terrible goal. To find your identity through your children's performance. If your kids are to be star athletes, again, same kind of thing. You're going to gear your time and your schedule and everything around uh, your kids' schedule so that they can achieve that goal. But in the end, that is a goal that is not worth pursuing. Maybe it's a goal for your kid to be really smart and go to the best schools and be successful and have a nice family and have lots of kids and and make lots of money. That that is actually a goal that Jesus will warn us about as a path that can lead to destruction. And so that should not be our goal. So the question is, what is the goal? What is the ultimate aim? Or maybe to get to that, what is distinct about 
Christian parenting. Now, I realize in this room, not everyone's a parent. I realize that some are, are, are kids and some are, uh, have raised their kids and sent them on. Some uh, will do foster and adoption. Some are waiting. Some are struggling. Uh, there, are, there is a, a, a spectrum in this room and yet all of them, have, the, this, the gospel applies to everybody. Because what is distinct about Christian parenting? That even though there's, there's a thousand books on Christian parenting that you can get at Christian bookstores, most of them, if you read and you ask the question, well, what's distinct about this? Well, what's distinct about this and my Mormon neighbor as they're raising their kids? What's distinct about my Hindu neighbor or my, my secular atheist neighbor? It looks like we all just want to have our kids be nice and healthy and safe and educated. And, and, and in the end, what's distinct about it? When you, when you understand what's distinct, you start to get to see what the goal of Christian parenting is. What's distinct is that we alone can offer and present the gospel into our homes. Mormons can't do that. Muslims can't do that. Secular atheists can't do that. It's the gospel that calls us to be distinct as parents. And so then we can say, well, what is the goal? Is the goal for us to have Christian children? I asked my kids this this week. What do you think the ultimate goal of, of parenting is? And one of them said, to, to raise Christians. And I said, actually, that's not the goal. They're like, well, why not? Because we'll, we'll understand the gospel tells us that we have actually very, very little power to that end. And if we have no power to that end, then it can't be the goal because it's not something we can achieve. So then what is the goal? I'll put it very simply here. The goal is to put on display the truth, the beauty, and the glory of God in the gospel in your home. We'll unpack that a little bit. But to put on display the truth, the beauty, and the glory of God in the gospel in your home. This is the goal. But, but to, un- to do that, you have to understand the gospel and its implications. The gospel has 10 million implications on every area of our life. And one of those areas is parenting. But to understand the gospel, one of the things you need to know, the kids that we dedicated this morning, the littlest image bearers, they are not spiritually and morally neutral creatures. They are created in God's image, but they have received from their first parents, Adam and Eve, downloaded from generation to generation, a rebellion in their heart. The Bible will call it sin nature. And so they're not blank slates. They are bent towards rebellion. They are bent towards hell. And this is the state of your kids. That's bad news. So you can't just reshape that. But the news gets worse than that because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us they are dead in their sins and transgressions spiritually. So, so apart from Christ's redeeming work, they are dead spiritually. Jesus would have a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the most morally upright, spiritually outstanding man in the land. And he came to Jesus at night and Jesus says, you know what? All of your good works will get you nowhere. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, rightly says, that's ridiculous. How, how is that even possible? And Jesus says, you're getting, you're getting closer. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so he says, you must be born again. All the kids that we dedicated, they must be born again. There, there must be a moment where they come and are awakened to the gospel, its truth, its beauty, and its glory. So then, again, how do we do that? You know, the Bible, especially even in the New Testament, 
actually uh, has a lot to say overarching about how we are to live our lives, but specifically, it, it doesn't have much to say about parenting. Did you know that? There are only two verses in the New Testament that deal specific with parents. Both from the Apostle Paul, both to fathers, and both say the same thing. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Colossians 3, 21, I believe. Paul says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children, but raise them and train them in the knowledge of the Lord and discipline of the Lord. He says, Fathers, don't provoke your children. Now, now that's all the New Testament says specifically about parents. But yet, I've, I've said that it says a, a lot more about that overarching. That, that came in Ephesians and Colossians. That comes out of a, a, an understanding of the gospel. So, so when you see and savor the gospel, that, that begins to work its way out. And so this is what the New Testament does on repeat. In the epistles and in the gospels. And this is what Jesus does. What he does is put on display the truth, the beauty, and the glory of God in the gospel. And this is what he's going to do for us in Luke chapter 15 this morning. Jesus is going to show us the aim of Christian parenting by showing us who the Father is. And when we look and behold the glory and the mercy and the grace and the beauty and the majesty of God the Father, it cannot but help to transform and change and motivate us. This week, we, uh, in our gospel community, we actually covered this parable. And uh, I, going through it, just getting the insights from others, just once again being wowed by the mercy of God and then being motivated by the gospel and its beauty to be a better father. So you know it probably as the parable of the prodigal son. And that's actually a bad title for it. Because we end up thinking that this story is about the younger rebellious brother. And it's not. There's actually two brothers. There's two prodigal sons. But it's actually not even about the sons. What Jesus is showing, what Jesus is putting on display in this story is the truth, the beauty, and the glory of God in the gospel. He's showing us the character and nature of our Heavenly Father. Because the good news is this. If the bad news is that your, your children are bent towards sin and they're, they're bent towards rebellion and they're spiritually dead, it, it gets even a little bit worse than that. You are bad parents. You, if your goal is to not mess up your children too late, you are a sinner and you've messed up your children. And so that's a bad goal. And you're like, how do we do it? Well, the gospel says there is one perfect child. His name was Jesus. There's one perfect father. He is the heavenly father. And Jesus came and lived a life of perfect obedience and thought, word, and deed. And then lived his life and went to a cruel Roman torture instrument called the cross and bore our sin and shame in our place on the cross. And the justified wrath of God against sinful humanity was poured out on His Son. And He took it for us. And He claimed that for us. And He died, buried, and resurrected. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the power of God for salvation that Paul, that Paul talks about. And so we're called to put that on display. We're not called to make Christian kids. We can't do it. I can't make someone born again. Only God can do that. And isn't that good news? Isn't that freedom for you as parents to do mess up your kids? Right? I mean, my home growing up was not exactly fertile soil for the gospel to take root. My parents were divorced when I was born. My mom was a single mother for a while. And then my stepfather came in and raised me. And he did a, he did a good job. But you know what? When I was 12 years old on Thanksgiving Day, wrestling with him at his family's house, a bag of 
cocaine fell out of his pocket. I snatched it up, put it in my pocket before anyone saw. I went to the bathroom because I had seen Beverly Hills Cop and I tasted cocaine. Twelve-year-old tasting cocaine. Not, not necessarily fertile soil for the gospel. And yet it was cocaine that will be the catalyst to bring me to Christ. Because six years later, my stepfather who raised me gets totally addicted to cocaine, totally wrecks his life, and I see in my life a need for the gospel and Jesus comes into my life. That is not a five-step plan to come, become a Christian. But the mercy and the grace and the glory of God says, I can use that. I'll use that. And so parents, the pressure is off. The pressure is off. He's not asking you to do something that only He can do. He's asking you to simply celebrate, soak in, and enjoy the gospel. So that's what Jesus does for us in this story. Now, you need to know in this story that there are two groups of people in this large crowd. In chapter 15, verse 1, it says there's tax collectors and sinners, and there's Pharisees and scribes. And so over here, we have the worst of the worst, people that have sold out their country, People that have taken bribes. People that have gone headlong into every sin imaginable. And and they are looked down upon and they are seen as outsiders. And then over here, uh, also drawn to Jesus were the scribes and Pharisees. These people had memorized the Bible. The Old Testament, at least. They had worked hard and diligently to apply it to their lives. And, And they believed that if they could just apply this to their lives, they would be good enough for God. And so they were very well respected. And they saw that they were doing a service to all of humanity when they pointed out people's shortcomings. And so Jesus has compassion for both of these groups. And He wants to show us the heart of the Father who has compassion for both of these groups. Again, we see this here. We see it beginning with the younger brother. Verse 11. And He said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Right away there would be a gasp in the crowd. Right away this is a great offense. They expect the father to slap the son's face. They expect the father maybe to put the son to death. Because what the son is doing, he he says, Father, I wish you were dead. So can you just give me what I have coming to me? And right away we get a glimpse of the beauty, the truth, and the glory of God. It says, and he divided his property between them. And again, the crowd is stunned. Both groups are stunned at this moment. Why would he do that? Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And, he, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Again, at this point in the crowd, both groups, their heads are shaking. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, I mean, look what he did. He went down that path. Clearly, that, that's where he, he deserves to go. Yeah, but, and some of them are like, yeah, I've been there. I've been in the muck and the mire with the pigs. I, I, I've gotten a job from the Gentiles, but it's not enough to feed me. And, and over here, the scribes are like, yeah, of course. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Finally, you're telling these people how things really play out in life if you are in rebellion. If they would just get their act together, well, it's too late for them. But the rest of you, if you keep your act together and follow us, we'd be good to go. And so this is how the story plays out. And everyone's like, oh, okay. That's how we thought it played out. That's, that's pretty much how life plays out. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. 
But when he came to himself, verse 17, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he comes up with a plan. He's like, I know the character and nature of my, my, my father enough to know that he'll at least sec, set, accept me as a, a servant maybe. Maybe I can work on the outer skirts of his plantation. Whatever the case may be, maybe I can go back. It shows that the younger brother, even though he's hit rock bottom, has no clue or understanding as to the true character and nature of his father. He's just desperate. And, and being desperate is often a good thing. It is the moment that we can lift our eyes. And if we can lift our eyes and see the father, then there is hope. It says, and, he, and he arose and came to his father. Then Jesus says, But while he was still a long way off, A long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. The implication is that his father has been looking for a long, long time on the horizon. He's like, give me the binoculars. And week after week, month after month, year after year, he's looking. He says, is my son coming back? And Jesus is revealing the heart of God. A God who is longing with compassion, looking out, seeking to save the lost. Not someone who's ready to get back at this son who deserves his wrath. And so he looks. While it was a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion and then ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is amazing. This is amazing today in the Middle East. This was amazing in the first century in the Middle East. Uh, respectable men don't run. He would have had to hike up his uh, robe there and he would have had to take it off and, and just to the g- gasp of the crowd and the gasp of the crowd that Jesus is talking to, the, the father runs and he kisses, holds him and And he kisses him and hugs him. And at this moment, there's another gasp in the crowd. And on this side, it's the gasp of, no way, shut up. Are you serious? Jesus, are you saying that, that, that God the Father is like that? That there's a mercy and love in the heart of God that not only doesn't reject me, but looks for me and longs for me to come home? Are you saying that's possible? And Jesus is saying that's possible. And over here, they're like, shut up. No way that's possible. That's not how God works. God is righteous. God is holy. We have His Word. We have His law. And we know what's right and what's wrong. And they're wrong and we're right. Jesus reveals something about the heart of God for the younger brother. But but Jesus is going to reveal something about the heart of God for the older brother as well. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He starts his speech, but he doesn't get to finish it because the compassion, mercy, grace, beauty, truth of God, uh, the Father intervenes here, verse 22. But the Father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There was a a rejoicing, a celebration going on. They, They pumped up the music. It was rocking in this place. And this crowd over here is saying, I can't believe if that's who God is, man, I want to run to Him even as He runs to me. And they're celebrating in their hearts and there's tears and weeping and joy that that God could be like that. 
verse uh, 25. And now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Super religious people don't like music and dancing. (laughs) They don't like celebration. They like earning their things from the Father. But he hears music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him, asked, what do these things mean? And he said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. He refused to go in. And again, this is a great offense in this culture. Again, a son has turned his back on his father. And again, done something so disrespectful, worthy of death. But again, the father has compassion. His father came out and entreated him. So so his father comes out and he's like, What's wrong, son? What's wrong? And he's with compassion and mercy in his heart telling this older brother, come on, son, come on, let's party. Let, let, let's, let's continue the celebration. Come on, you can do this with us. Please come into the house. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look these many years. I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. Ridiculous. <laughs> that I might celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours came, came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then Jesus ends the story. But what Jesus is doing in the story, He's telling the older brothers, He's telling the scribes and the Pharisees, He's saying there's a room in the heart of God for you as well if you would just come in by grace through faith. If you'll just stop trusting in yourself and your good works and your own righteousness, then you could come into the party and celebrate and have all that the Father has is yours. My fear is that as Christian parents, we are very good at creating older brothers. We are very good at creating systems that, be, that create behavior modification that looks good on the outside, but on the inside is deadness. And Jesus is saying the Father loves them both. The mercy is offered to both, but one is easier to come back than the other. And so how do we put on display this kind of love? How do we put on display this kind of truth, this kind of beauty, this kind of glory? And when I get to this point, I'm very hesitant because the last thing I want you to hear is, well, here's the three steps to good Christian parenting. There aren't three steps. But, but I want to encourage you. There are ways to so celebrate the gospel in your life that it becomes an attraction to your kids. The first one is simply yourself. Have you been captured by the beauty and majesty of who Jesus is? Do you pursue Him? Do you wonder and awe? Do your kids know that you are an authentic worshiper? Is that a priority in your life? So first is we've got to be amazed by this. And if it's not, uh, we can pray the prayer. Lord, make that true in my life. God delights to answer that prayer. So that's the first one. 
Secondly, I think we uh, help our children understand what repentance and forgiveness looks like. I already said, you, you have messed up your kids. You will mess up your kids. But we can model for our kids what a constant turning back to God is. You know your kids who are sinners. You know all the sin that they do is merely a reflection of your own heart that you do worse and more. If you, if you think your kids sin less and in different ways than you, you probably don't understand your own heart. Listen, when your kid lies, it's because you're a liar. When your kid is greedy, it's because you're greedy. When your kid gets angry, it's because you're greedy. So in that moment, you don't just ignore them and be like, that's just my kid. No, you go to them and you get on their your level and you say, hey, listen, I, I know you've lied to me because my, my heart lies too. And we need to go before God and ask for His forgiveness. We need to do this together. So we pray with them. I know you're angry with your brother and sister. I get angry. And I need God's forgiveness too. And so we model to them what it's like to turn back to God in repentance and forgiveness. We, we model to them going to them and saying, Hey, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I've already asked God to forgive me, but will you forgive me? I shouldn't talk to you that way. I lost my temper. All these things. We, we have to model a person that's been captured by the gospel. I think because we're trying to shepherd our children's heart, we have to model what Paul says in Ephesians 6.4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in the knowledge and the discipline of the Lord. And so you are, you are stewards of your kids. You are called to help train your kids to respond to God in the way they respond to you. So Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. A father that does not love his kids does not discipline his kids. And so uh, what this looks like is just showing them, look, your rebellion in our household needs to be corrected and disciplined because I don't want you to go down that path of rebellion in life. But God is merciful if you turn back to him. So we have to have a gospel culture in our home. That this is what it means to put on display the truth, the beauty, and the glory of God. A gospel culture that says, man, I know my kids are messed up. I know I'm messed up. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is the mercy and grace of God. And so when they come home to you and they're like, I've really messed up my life. I've really gone down here. I've really gone bad. In that moment, I hope that you have a gospel flinch. Like, you know what? God is good. Instead of a, I told you so, you, why do you always do this, you, you, you're, you, you deserve this, you deserve to be eating with the pigs kind of atmosphere. So let's put the gospel on display. Let's ask God's help for that. Let's be the kind of church that helps families put the gospel on display. When you see it on display, encourage the other parents and say, hey, I've seen that. When you see evidences of grace in your kids or in other kids, just say, hey, it looks like the Lord is at work in your kid. There's a, an affection for Jesus that is growing. Let's flame, fan that flame. Let's, let's encourage and pray for that. Let's be the kind of church that comes alongside and says the gospel changes everything. To that end, let me pray for us. So, Father, we do get to come before you now because of the gospel in the name of your perfect Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we have no hope in ourselves. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves, and our kids do not either. 
So we are desperately in need of you. We're desperately in need of your spirit to do a work of renewal and new life and regeneration. So would you do that in our homes and in our hearts? Father, I pray for any parents here that just need to model repentance and forgiveness to their kids. Lord, there are no perfect parents except for you. So I pray that today would be a day for that. I pray for the kids, Lord, that they would see and live and breathe the atmosphere of a gospel that it puts the truth, beauty, and glory of God on display. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.